Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possesses this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the joy that it is to be together. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We ask you as we engage with this text of Scripture, as we continue worshiping you, um, as we continue to be together, we just ask you that you would help us to see you for who you are, that we would acknowledge all that you've done, and that we would glorify you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I was thinking about this text because it relates to, obviously, uh, food sacrifice to idols and, you know, how pertinent that is to most of us today. I say that as a kid who grew up in a small town in central Alberta, uh, where I don't think I'd ever seen food sacrificed to an idol um, ever in my life until I started to travel. Um, for many of you, you might even be from faith backgrounds that, that connect what you eat to what you believe. And of course, that all made me think of um, one of my favorite characters on television. His name is Ron Swanson. Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. You're not familiar with the show, that's okay. Ron Swanson is a government employee who doesn't really like the fact that government spends lots of money. He's kind of a libertarian. He's anti-government, but he runs a government department. Hilarity ensues. This is, this is the premise of the show. He's at a, a large government function at a banquet hall in a hotel. And he says, I don't like big government functions like this, but he says, this hotel always serves my favorite food wrapped around my third favorite food. And I would come to honor the Somali pirates as long as they keep serving bacon-wrapped shrimp. That's what he's saying. Now, when he says that his favorite food, bacon, is wrapped around his third favorite food, shrimp, and he always goes to these functions because he really enjoys that kind of meal, he's telling us something not just about his taste buds and his palate. He's actually telling us something about what he believes. In many parts of the world, if you said you loved bacon-wrapped shrimp, that would indicate what you either believed or did not believe. So we sort of just gloss over that because of the secular world that we live in and the pluralistic society that we live in. But but many people, and some of you maybe even in the backgrounds that you've come from, 
your food is connected to your faith. Indeed, millions of people around the world, their food is tied to their faith. So as we look at this, I promise there won't be anything else from Parks and Rec, don't worry. No more Ron Swanson references. But I do want to look at this text in light of this truth, in light of this reality, in light of this challenge. And I also want to do our best to connect the challenge itself that we see in the text to some things that that we might be able to live out principally here um, as we try to honor God in this neighborhood. So we're going to look at this text. We're going to look at how it's about love, not knowledge. How it's about God, not idols. And how it's about others, not self. It's about love, not knowledge. We're going to look at that. It's about God, not idols, which we'll see. And it's about others, not self. All right, look at the first part of verse 1. It says, now concerning food offered to idols. Okay, now if we're going to understand this, that's as far as I want you to go. So if you've got your Bibles open, just stop reading. You're already lost. Come back and hang out with me. Concerning food offered to idols. If we're going to understand, I think the, the full importance of this text for us today in 2022 on Time Change Sunday, by the way, I will be a single issue voter in the next election for whoever gets rid of this. Okay. okay. But I love you. That has, nothing to do with the, that has nothing to do with what's going on in the text. I just wanted to say thank you very much. Okay. If we're going to understand this, what we need to do is just take a little bit of a trip back into first century Corinth and try to make some sense of the context that they were living in so that we can understand the principles that we see in this text even more clearly. Back when we first started this series, back in September, we talked about how ancient Corinth was a religiously pluralistic city. All sorts of idols, all sorts of temples, all sorts of beliefs, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious kind of city. Filled with temples, filled with idols to all sorts of gods. It was very normal in that era of history as well, in in the city of Corinth, that um, you would end up being in a lot of these temples. You wouldn't have only gone to the one that, you know, maybe you were making your sacrifice to, but you would have been invited to others, and it would have been very normal for you to be swapping and going with your friends to different idols, to different gods. All right, the, the pagan religious view didn't hold the same kind of exclusivity that we might uh, believe, and, and so we need to think about that. And one of the things that would have been common in this era of history with all of the pagan worship that was going on, one of the things that would have been common across the board would have been animal sacrifice. And since Corinth is this big diverse city, a very religious city, animal sacrifice would have been a daily reality and an essential part of the life of the citizens of Corinth. It might have been a state festival or it could have been a private celebration of some kind, Either, either way. The sacrifices that they were offering to the pagan gods um, meant that you brought an animal. Now, you didn't bring the entire, well, you brought the entire animal, but the entire animal wasn't consumed. And this is, this is the important part for us. You, know, you might have had the thought that, you know, if you're going to bring some sort of animal to the sacrifice, that the whole thing is just gone and you've honored God by burning the entire thing. That's actually not the case. Sometimes all they burned was just like actually a, a little bit of the hair of the animal. They would burn it as an offering to the god. And, and sometimes it was more. But the point is, whenever an animal was offered as a sacrifice, there was lots of leftover meat. That's the entire picture that I'm trying to paint. You're a worshiper, but there's meat left over. Okay? On one hand, from you know, I'm a central Alberta guy, right? Lots of cows where I grew up. Bison, cattle, pigs, 
chickens. Just tasty food. You, are, you, are you okay? Says, I didn't walk, yeah, anyways, I, I didn't walk into something, I'm a, just about to make a bad joke that would have, I'm not walking into that. Okay, historians tell us that the animal, when it was brought for a sacrifice, was divided up into three parts. And again, the differing amount of what would go on, but some token offering was burnt on the altar to honor that small g god. That's the first part that was taken. The second is the priests who were uh, administrating that and running that temple, they would have gotten their share. And then the third part was for the worshiper, the one offering the sacrifice. You get the rest of the meat. So you come and you kind of dedicate this animal to God. You'd make a token offering of it. You give some to the priests who are mediating this whole process. And then you get the rest of the meat. Okay. With all the meat that they had left, it, they didn't go put it in their freezer. Okay. There was a banquet. It was consumed. You'd have some kind of celebration. Think of a wedding. Think of another big celebration. Whatever you would get a catered meal for, this is what's going on. Now, sometimes these feasts were in the house of the host. If they had a big enough residence, they would make their offering, the meat would be taken back to their residence, and they would have this big banquet, this big thing. Or, oftentimes, the celebration, the feast itself, happened in the temple of the God that they had dedicated the sacrifice to. These meals were where the idol meat, the meat sacrificed to idols, this is where the food was consumed. These were definitively religious, but you also have to think that they were very, very social. It's a huge part of the social life of the citizens of Corinth. In fact, Gordon Fee writes this. He said, for the most part, the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people, who had become believers in Corinth, they had attended such meals all their lives. This was the very basic, uh, this was the basic restaurant in antiquity. And every kind of occasion was celebrated in this fashion. So here's where the problem comes in, okay? You've grown up your whole life in Corinth. You've eaten at a whole bunch of the different temples. You've eaten meat sacrificed to idols your whole life. And then Paul shows up, preaches the gospel. You become a Christian, and now you have a question that you need to answer. This is the problem that Paul is writing about. The question that they are wrestling with is whether or not they should continue to eat meat sacrificed to idols, particularly sitting in the idol's temple. This is the question we're dealing with. How should they handle themselves as a community of Jesus' followers? Okay. Some were of one camp. Some Christians, they would say, who cares? We're Christians. We serve the one true God. Idols are nothing. I don't care where the meat comes from as long as it's medium rare and salted properly. Okay? And that's one group of people. That's what they think. God is God. Idols are nothing. That is just meat. I am hungry. I will go eat it. No big deal. But others, others in the church in Corinth evidently had some problem with it. It's become an issue for them. You've got one camp saying, look, we're free in Christ. We know it's just meat. Yes, we're sitting in a temple, but it doesn't mean a thing for us because we serve the one true God. And you've got the other camp saying, I don't, I don't know. I used to worship in that temple. Like I was deeply devoted to that God. I walked away from that because I became a follower of Jesus. Maybe my faith's not as strong as those people who have no problem with it. Doesn't seem to bother those people. Maybe I should just go and do what they do. I don't know. And their conscience is violated. They're starting to be tempted to go back to an old practice. The issue here is not someone being offended 
at the conduct of someone else. I want you to really be clear with this. The issue is someone being tempted to return to a former religious practice that could ruin their faith. And, and the real problem is, evidently, there were people in the church going like, come on, come with me. Let's go back there. Idolatry Cafe has the best tenderloin. But it's a problem for some. Now, this text is setting the stage for where we're going in the next number of weeks as we move through chapters 9 and 10. And, and, and so we're going to cover a lot of ground as we look at this. I'm trying to set the table. No pun intended. That was bad. I'm trying to set the table to try and show you what, what the real issue that Paul's working on here. The first thing he's concerned about is the attitude of the church. He's concerned about the attitude and the subsequent conduct of the church, the behavior and the arguments of some in the church in Corinth. It's like they have no regard for the way that their behavior is impacting others in their community. And you got to remember, this community is not huge. We're talking like 100, 200 people in their church in a city of like 50 to 100,000 people. So when there's a whole group of people who are like, let's go to the idol temple and eat, and you've got another group of people going, I used to worship there, let's not go there, that's crazy. You've got to realize there's going to be some tension. So what's the attitude that Paul is really concerned about? Look at this in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay. Paul, I'm just going to remind you, is responding to a letter that the church has written to him. He's not in Corinth. He's somewhere else. They've written a letter to him. He's responding to it. So when he starts out this, the, the sentence with now concerning food offered to idols, we have another movement in the text. We're moving back into a question that they have asked him. He is responding to something. And the stuff that you see in the quotation marks here, it, it marks the Corinthian slogan that he's highlighting. They say, we know that all of us possess knowledge. He says to them, right, but this so-called knowledge that you have puffs up, makes you proud. Now we know for whatever reason, the Corinthians are obsessed with knowledge. We saw this all the way back in chapter one, chapter two, all the way through. They're, for whatever reason, they're obsessed with knowledge. It seems like it's a huge issue for them as a church, and it's likely related to the obsession that they had with status and standing in their community. Like if you had this knowledge, then you were the super spiritual group. You were the super spiritual category of the people in the church. You really knew what was going on. It seems like it's something like that that we're wrestling through, but the, the fruit of the so-called quote-unquote knowledge that we see in this text, the, the fruit of that knowledge was pride. It was puffed up. It was all about flaunting what they knew for their own benefit and for their own status. And, and here that knowledge that puffs up is contrasted with love that builds up. Do you see this? So what was this knowledge that they are then on about? Well, look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. A couple more slogans, a couple more quotations. This is likely what they said to him in their letter, and he's responding to it. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Now, on the surface, 
This so-called knowledge sounds fine, right? Idols are nothing and we serve the one true God. Go, amen? It's true. Here's the problem. Again, they're not necessarily wrong. The way they're handling themselves is wrong. Their attitude is wrong. The way they're thinking about the whole thing is wrong. They want to dig their heels in and they want to say, look, I'm right. There's a division in the church over this issue. They write to Paul about it. He gives them a response. They, they're wanting to say, I'm right. And they're, they're wanting to be right more than they want to love their brother or sister in Christ. It's an attitudinal issue. It's team puffed up and there's team build up. Team knowledge, team love. They've chosen the wrong team. The fruit of their knowledge is pride, not love. So it seems those who are on team knowledge, if I can call them that, were fine eating at whatever temple they got invited to eat at, but they were doing so to the detriment of faith of others in their church. And they're taking their so-called knowledge and telling everybody that they know that they are free to go ahead and continue participating in meals in some other temple. They are more interested in exercising what they believe to be their freedoms and their rights than they are worried about causing some of their fellow Christians to stumble. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, nor are we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Paul is saying their so-called knowledge has puffed them up and it is leading to the destruction of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Go back to verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Just look at verse 2 again. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. This is one of the great sentences in Paul in the New Testament. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. It's actually more helpful than it looks. Here's what he's saying. If you have a so-called knowledge that's puffing you up, and it's resulting in pride rather than causing you to love, you do not yet know as you ought to know. If what you know results in pride, not love, you do not yet know as you ought to know. There's a false kind of knowledge that leads to lovelessness in the way that you relate to others, which will ultimately destroy them. Okay, Paul says, he does not know as he ought to know. When he says that, there, there, that, that means there is a way that you ought to know. There is a way that you ought to know. There is a right kind of knowledge. So there's a false kind of so-called knowledge that leads to puffed up pride, but there's also the right kind of knowledge that then leads to love. Look at verse three. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, loving God leads to the best kind of knowledge there is. 
which is being known by God. There's no better knowledge than that. You're being known by God. I think loving God is knowing as you ought to know. So as it relates to the function of the church, it's about love, not your knowledge. Here's this whole point. Since you are known by God and you love God, the way you live and relate to people in the church and the city isn't supposed to be driven by your knowledge. It's not supposed to be driven, your your relationships are not supposed to be driven by how you hang on to your rights, how you hang on to your freedoms. But as we see in the text, the relationships we have with one another would be driven by love. It's about love, not knowledge. It's about love, not knowledge. Secondly, it's about God, not idols. It's about love, not knowledge. It's about God, not idols. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. We already looked at that. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. As it relates to the slogans that they included in their letter to Paul that they have put forward, Paul is basically in agreement with this, that they have a a right assessment that there is one true God. And, And what he does is he actually modifies a monotheistic prayer from the Old Testament. And he appropriates it for use in the New Testament to, ex- to, to, to affirm the pre-existence and the deity of Christ. Here, here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, it says there is one God, monotheism, mono-one-theism God, monotheism, one God. That's Paul's background. That's what he's taught them. It's also the Christian faith. So what he does is he reaches back into Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verse 4, the most famous monotheistic declaration. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What he does, the Bible clearly affirms this monotheism, one God. Corinth was a place of many small g gods. The church there had figured it out that there's no God but one. Paul says, you're right. There is one God. And he modifies this prayer, and he says, One God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Again, their knowledge is kind of on point. Um, They say there's one one God. Paul affirms it, so, so much so that he takes this very famous Jewish statement, and he puts Jesus in the middle of it, and he says, Yes, one God. Now, I don't have time to talk about this, And I could talk for like hours just about this. This is one of the earliest affirmations of the full deity of Christ, the full pre-existence of Christ. Now, I know that most of you who are followers of Jesus did not walk in here today questioning whether or not Jesus was God. Which is good. You really are hurting for that hour of sleep you lost. It's a tough room to preach in this morning. This is a big deal, this text, just so you know. 
I'm not skipping it because I don't think it's a big deal. I'm skipping it because I, I think for the most part you all understand that Jesus is God. That's a, a Christian pillar. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God. So they, they say this. They go, look, there's only one God. That's great. Paul can affirm their slogan. But then he goes on to verse 5. What's this? What's this? For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, what's going on? He just said there's one God. An idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. There is one God, the Father. There is one Lord, Jesus. What's going on? Why is he talking about there being many lords and many gods? Again, things that I'm not going to deal with until several weeks from now. At the end of chapter 10, where this section really ends, the argument runs all the way through there. This is what he says, verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. This is where you go, oh, dang. He made that real. At the end of his whole argument on this entire section that starts out, now concerning food offered to idols, this is where he gets to. Now, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. We are that church. One scholar said it like this. Paul Gardner said, Paul's point is simply this. While idols are nothing, when compared with God the Father, who creates all things, from whom are all things, and the one Lord, Jesus Christ, who sustains us and all things, nevertheless, demons do exist and can truly be worshipped. The demons of chapter 10 are the gods and lords of chapter 8. Okay. It's about God, not idols. But when you put God on one end of a scale... And, you know, demon-infested idols on the other end of the scale. The idol, idols are nothing. That's what he's saying. They're nothing in comparison to the one true God. See, it's about God, not idols. That doesn't mean you should be messing around with idols. Behind every idol these pagans are sacrificing to, he's saying there's a demon receiving their worship. <laughs> this is a great text. I was having a good chat with the university and college group on Friday night about the importance of preaching through books of the Bible. And I used this week as an example of a text I would never touch unless I was preaching through a book of the Bible. It's about love, not knowledge. It's about God, not idols. Third, because it's about love and because it's about God, it's about others, not self. It's about others, not self. Again, this is very important. Imagine I was one of the pastors at the church in Corinth. It's first century, we're all in Corinth. You're cruising the street, doing some shopping. You look in the window of the idolatry cafe and you see me sitting down enjoying a nice piece of properly seasoned medium rare meat. You're one of the people who used to worship at that temple. You used to eat at Idolatry Cafe all the time, but it always, for you, had religious significance. Then you meet Jesus, you get radically saved, you put all of that idol worship behind you. In fact, Paul says earlier, 
in chapter 5 and in other places have nothing to do with idolaters. And you know, you were an idolater. You used to sacrifice a lot of meat and eat it in the temple in celebrations to that God. And now your pastor's sitting down in idolatry cafe, just gnawing on a nice piece of meat. What are you to think about that? Is it really loving of me to say, I have knowledge that there's only one God and this meat is fine for me to eat right here in this temple. No, it's not loving of me to say that. It's going to hurt your faith. On one hand, it's going to make you question whether or not you should maybe just go back to worshiping that pagan God. Maybe that's what your pastor's doing too. Maybe he's a worshiper of Jesus and Aphrodite or and, you know, you fill in the blank with your temple. Maybe. Maybe that's what you see your pastor doing. On the other hand, if it bothers you and like you wouldn't feel right eating in there, maybe there's something deficient in you. Maybe it's your faith. Boy, that spiritual leader who's just sat down, he seems to think it's fine. And maybe because you feel like you've got weak faith, maybe you're tempted to just show up and pull up a chair and dig in with me. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, whose conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If I've lost you in our walk through the ancient streets of Corinth, come back and hear this one sentence. It's not about you. It's not about you. Actually, be probably a really good exercise for some of you to just jump up in the morning, look in the mirror, and go, it's not about you. Put that right alongside what I like to say. God, you are God, and I'm not. It's not about you. Paul's saying, if you understand Jesus, you will understand love. And if you understand love, you'll know how to conduct yourself in community because it's not about you. But if you're struggling to love those in your community, it might be, he's saying, I think he's saying, it might be because you don't understand God's love for you in Christ, which means you've somehow misunderstood what this whole Christianity thing is about. See, if you're more interested in like a self-centered, puffed up knowledge where in your pride, you want to fight with others about where you should be eating and what you should be eating. You've got no concern about their destruction or causing them to stumble. Then I think what it's saying is you need to come back to square one. Remember, it's not about you. Something else though. Some of you hear that and you go, oh man, I hear that. And you feel the weight of it. You're like Paul going, ah, if, if meat causes someone to stumble, I'll never eat it again. You're very sensitive like that, and that's good. It's wonderful. You love others. You want to honor God. You're willing to put them before you. It's great. Hear this too. This text is not a license for the perpetually offended person to spiritualize their preferences 
and use this verse to try and manipulate the behavior of others. Let me say it again. This text is not a license for the perpetually offended person to spiritualize their preferences and use this verse to try and manipulate the behavior of others. Again, it's not about you. It's not. It's not about me. It's not about you. There's a pastor I was talking to who, um, when he was growing up, the, the pastor at his church at the time decided that he would no longer wear a tie on Sundays. Yeah. Times are changing. I'm going to get crazy and take my tie off. Yeah. Pastor says, I'm not going to wear a tie on Sunday anymore. I don't need to. Members of the church leave. Don't you know that we serve a king and when you serve a king, you dress your best as though you're standing before a king? You ever heard that stuff? It's hilarious. Stupid also. These are the texts that get used to manipulate people into following your preference. So don't be the perpetually offended person going around being like, "Mm, purple shirts are bad. Makes me stumble. No, they don't. That's dumb. No. Burgundy pocket squares. I'm on team buildup, and you're wearing a purple pocket square. Come on. I wear jackets when I get chubby in the winter. That's the only reason I have one on. Okay? By, by spring, summer, I'll be back in t-shirts. Don't worry. Like, I love Christ City. I love our church. I want to guard it against people who think it's all about them and who do whatever the heck they want in the name of their freedom without any consideration to those around them. I want to guard the church from you if that's you. I also want to guard the church from people who run around being offended at everything. Come on. Oh, there's kids running around here all the time. Yeah. We tried that. That's our goal. Our goal was to have lots of kids here running around all the time. That's why we built the whole basement into a kids' ministry. Oh, it's so loud. Yeah, they're kids in a church building worshiping Jesus together. Don't bring your perpetual offendedness on other things like that. They're they're not salvific things. They're They're not important. You can't use this text to get what you want. I probably could do this for way too long, so I'm going to stop there. (laughs) This text says you got to put others first. This text also says it's not about you manipulating people for your preferences. Don't spiritualize your preferences and then quote this verse. Some of us have sensitive consciences and we will follow you. And it will be a terrible thing for you to put us in bondage. Maybe the whole idea of of, uh, idol meat in the temple doesn't really connect with you at all. Maybe you're sitting here and you're going like, come on, man. The whole first half of the sermon was stupid. It's fine. You can think that. It's your preference. It's fine. Let's talk about a different angle. Let's try and bring this into 2022 Vancouver. Let's talk about yoga. What are you saying about your Christian faith if you regularly commit time and energy to a Hindu practice? Yoga was not developed as an exercise plan. Yoga was developed as a means of worship to experience spiritual things. It's inherently religious. 
just like eating in an idol's temple in Corinth in the first century. Some of the poses involve worship to the sun and other deities from a very Hindu point of view. Now I get it, right? Stretching is good for you. And like Carl down at the community center, who's your yoga instructor, is not Hindu. I get that. I hear this all the time. It's a good workout. I get it. And our Western worldview has a way of taking something and just gutting things like yoga of their spirituality. But that doesn't necessarily make it a good idea because the conversation shouldn't be around what you want or don't want and more around maybe what serves others best. So my Indian friend says, when someone says yoga, and, and what they mean by that is just stretching, it's actually a misuse of the word. And people from an Indian community would not understand it as merely stretching because it comes with all the religious baggage from their past. I've got friends who used to be missionaries in India, and they could not believe when the yoga craze kind of hit North America and a bunch of Christians started doing it. They couldn't believe it. It actually made their job as white Western missionaries in India more difficult because they would just point at the church in North America and go, well, what? You're syncretists too. You're just blending together religious practice. So rather than talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols at the local temple, which maybe doesn't mean anything to you, we could talk about going to a yoga class. We got real quiet in here. Hey, you're here on a Sunday morning, you're worshiping Jesus, it's awesome. You wake up Sunday or a Monday morning and, and another group of people wake up Monday morning. And that, that group of people, they have a, a Monday morning, read the Bible and pray before the start of the work week thing at a cafe. And so they get together, they get the scriptures open around the table, they're reading the Bible, they're praying together, encouraging each other before they head into work. Well, you also have a, a routine and part of your routine is to take your yoga mat, walk down the street, you walk by the cafe on your way to the yoga class, you give a wave to your friends who are inside studying the scriptures and you got your yoga mat and you head into the yoga studio. What if some of the people who now follow Jesus used to practice yoga as part of their spiritual life? And when they walked away from Hinduism or whatever form of spirituality they associated with yoga, because now it's sort of pluralistic again, they walked away from that to become Christians. They walked away from that as a rejection of that worldview and belief system to embrace Christ. And now they look through that window right, at the yoga studio, and they see their brother or sister in Christ in the warrior pose. That's supposed to embody the essence of the warrior son of the Hindu god Shiva. And they know that. And they're looking at you doing it. And they're super confused because you are celebrating communion on Sunday morning. And for them, it's a difficult thing. They don't really understand. So some of the Corinthians eating at Idolatry Cafe was just a place to get a meal. That's all it was. To some of you, yoga is just a workout. That's all it is. Paul just says it's not primarily about you. It's not primarily about you. So the last thing I would want for you to leave here today with is, I just heard something about yoga. I want you to hear that you heard something about Jesus and loving others. I have a stretching routine. I was in an accident four years ago, and if I don't stretch now, I feel like an 85-year-old man who hasn't been out of his armchair for a while. From what I understand, some of those stretches may be related to, to some sort of practice, but it's just stretching. So if you're just stretching, just call it stretching. 
It's less confusing to your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, and it's less confusing to your brother or sister for whom that could be a stumbling block. It's just something we have to think about. Again, it's not about you. It's not about me. Paul says it's not primarily about us. You're free in Christ. Yes, absolutely you're free. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But we're also free in Christ to restrict our freedoms and to set aside our rights for the sake of loving another. This is also what we're free for. We're free from the old life of bondage to sin, but we are free for loving others. And that means sometimes you can set down your rights for the sake of your neighbor, for the sake of your brother or sister, just like Jesus did. Philippians chapter 2 says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We don't have to hang on to what we may perceive to be freedoms. We're free to give them up as Jesus did as he served us.